Scripture reading this morning is from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow, and I will fit it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, This past week, uh, Jamie and I, I wasn't here on Sunday, Jamie and I were in Asheville, North Carolina, and we had been invited to go to a small little conference with a couple other pastors, three other pastors and their wives from this, from this area, mostly in the Woodlands. And we also met with some people from this mission, uh, it's this global mobilizing church planting effort called East West, and we had a great time with them, and um, we got to pray together and think together and reflect together, and Jamie and I got some time to hang out, and we actually went on this six-mile hike, and Jamie became the cheerleader because she's like marching up this thing. Come on, y'all, we can do this. Let's go. People are dropping like flies, you know. Uh, we had a really, really, it was really sweet um, to be there together. Um, but while we were there, one of the things that I was reflecting on as I was thinking about this sermon is how important it is um, and how meaningful it is to share your lives with other people. Um, these are new friends for me, some of these people I just met, and they were telling me about some of the things that had gone on in their life in the past couple years as a group, and things they were looking forward to, and um, their kind of present situation was very much shaped by their understanding of what's happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future. Uh, it, It almost helps them navigate where they presently are to understand what's happened, what's going to happen, where am I now? And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning. Um, Where are you? You're heading towards Christmas. I don't know if you know that. It's 55 days away, right? Ten days from now, we'll have our Thanksgiving Eve service. Two weeks from now, two weeks from today, is our first Advent service of the year. Um, And during Advent is that time we celebrate what I've just been talking about, looking back at what God has done with His Son Jesus, anticipating that He'll come again to navigate our present. The whole season of Advent is about that. When you enter into the season of Advent, you're re-entering the story of God's people looking forward to Jesus being among us, of sending the King, the very one that Zechariah speaks of here in, the, in chapter 9 and throughout, uh, this, throughout this minor prophet. Understanding where you've been is important. Winston Churchill said this, the longer you look back, the further you can look forward. Or kids, maybe you've heard this before, when your parents say, you'll understand when you're older. You know, you'll understand when you're older. And there's some truth to that, because when you're five years old, you only have a few years of history to remember, but you understand that there's a future. I mean, we all understand there's a future. And when you're 30 and 40 and 50, you've got a few more decades to sort of reflect on what's happened 
so you can think about what's going to happen, so you know how to navigate where you are now. The Scriptures are like that. That's a theme of the Bible. God telling us, this is what's happened, here's what I'm going to do, and so this is what that therefore means for you in this exact moment. One of the things um, that I've taken away, you know, every time I prepare a sermon, it's like God does some hard work on me. I mean, I'm digging in the Scriptures, I'm praying, I'm thinking about what He has to say, and it is so important for us to understand that God wants us to, to know that we have a story and that He's leading us somewhere. And that when we wake up and we care about that, the moment you wake up and you start caring about what's the story in the past, what are you going to do? That He rushes towards us. If you read in Zechariah chapter 1, the Lord says, if you will return to me, I will return to you. If you will return to me, I will return to you. That is always going to be true. If you will just turn towards me, I will always be there. You will always find me. And the book of Zechariah, you know, this series, um, Seeing Jesus in the Minor Prophets, this is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, Zechariah is. There's 71 quotes from Zechariah in the Newer Testament. A third of those quotes are in the Gospels. A third of them are in Revelation, which you'll understand why in a few moments. And the rest are kind of scattered about in Paul's letters and other, other places. It is a significant book. It shapes the people of God's understanding of what's happened and where we're headed. The first eight chapters of Zechariah are about the problems of the past and the present concerns of God's people in that moment and their immediate future. This is the post-exilic period, so they've already been in bondage, and they've now been freed, and now they're kind of like, sweet. Anyway, back to what I was doing before. And uh, they're being confronted by Zechariah to say, wait a minute, the last time you did that, do you remember what happened? You ended up in bondage. It's kind of like when your parents tell you, hey, don't do that again, or this is going to happen, right? You ever, have you ever had that experience as a, as a person? And then you do it again, and guess what happens? The exact thing they said was going to happen. God, in this moment, he's, telling, he's approaching his people, and he's saying, hey, remember what's happened. Remember what I've done. Remember what I've promised I'm going to do. Let that calibrate reality for you. And that's the first eight chapters. And then in the last six chapters of Zechariah, it is filled with apocalyptic imagery, future-oriented stuff, very, very difficult things to interpret, although things that are very much drawn from for the book of Revelation, direct quotes even. Um, in the, uh, the, Zechariah is meant to help give us a grounding in who God is and what he said, as well as what he's promised beyond our present day. The people of God at this point are being asked this question by God. If you go back to chapter 1. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. God is saying that to us this morning. Wherever you are, if you're in like a really sweet moment in your relationship with Jesus and it's just great, cool. I'm so happy for you. That's probably not the case for most of us in this room. And what God wants us to hear is, is this is his word to us. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. There's nothing worse than turning to something that you hope in and hope for, only to discover that it is vacant and gone. You will never experience that with God. Return. That's a cool ringtone. That's <laughs> all right. If you return to me, I will return to you. Zechariah is calling the people to look at that. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look backwards a little bit from Zechariah. We're going to look forward from Zechariah here and then think about how that calibrates our present 
as you head towards the holidays, which you may be dreading or you may be excited about, but they are coming. So, looking backward, God's people are reminded of their past. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4, that those verses I just read to you a second ago, but beginning in verse 4, which is right after that, return to me, I'll return to you. Then, do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants and the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. So what's happening there? God reminds them of their past. He says, remember what happened with your ancestors. Remember I told them that if you don't follow my ways, it's not going to lead to life. If you don't follow my ways, it's not going to lead to where you hope it leads. That the things that you're trusting in that promise you security and hope, they're liars and they're going, to, they're going to lead you to bondage. You remember I told you that and that you didn't listen? And then what happened? The prophets died. We read here. His, God's word was spoken as we read here. The ancestors are gone as we read here. But what stood forever? God's word. Did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants and the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Like, I told you this was going to happen, and then it happened. And here we are again. You're ignoring the words from the prophets. You're ignoring my word. Where do you think it's going to lead you? And with humility, God's people respond. The Lord Almighty has done to us, they, they said, as they were repenting. Exactly what our ways and our practices deserve, just as he determined to do. This is a very humble moment. They're saying, God, you're right. Exactly what you said was going to happen has happened. We have ignored you. We have pretended like you're not real. We've acted like you're irrelevant. And, and now what? Now what do we do? And so what Zechariah does is in the next uh, several chapters is he gives them three different visions to think about in light of their current situation. There are people who admit they're wrong. They've ignored God. They've forgotten God. They're disinterested. God has called them on it. They've said, yes, you're right. And he goes, let me tell you a story. And there's a vision. This is chapter 3. Then, Zechariah says, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. While the, uh, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. So this is an immediate experience for the people of God in their current situation where God is saying, here's my response to you, your humility. Here's my response to your repentance. Here's what I'm going to do. Imagine a courtroom. And Joshua is standing there. And there's filth on his clothes. Now what is filth? 
It's whatever you think it is. It's disgusting, okay? But it's also a lot of other, you know, very obvious things. And he's not splattered with it. He's covered with it. And Satan is there. And Satan is being honest. Satan is being truthful. He's saying, you know what? This is who Joshua is. You told him this would happen. You told the people of God. You warned them. And they did not listen. And so they deserve punishment. The accuser is there. But then there's another who's there. And who is it? Who is this one that can forgive sins? Who is this one who says, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you? It's Jesus. Jesus is there in the courtroom next to Joshua. Satan is there in the courtroom next to Joshua. And they're before a judge. How does Jesus respond to the moment his people's hearts say, you're right, we need to repent, what do we do? Take off your filthy clothes. I have taken away your sin. I will put fine garments on you. Put a clean turban on his head. I really don't want, I don't think I want that, but I I get it. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. And with the angel, the Lord stood by. Do you realize how incredible this picture is? What I would expect to happen is this. Okay, Joshua, you've heard the accusations. What are you going to do to fix this so that you can be in relationship with me again? That's not what he does. Immediately, as soon as Joshua is standing there and the accuser says what he's going to say, the Lord says, no, 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 no. I have snatched a burning stick out of a fire and I want you to put clean clothes on him because he belongs to me. This is mine. And then what's he call him to do? Then he calls him to walk in obedience, to follow him. You know, the reason God wants us to follow his ways is not because he's a divine killjoy. He just wants to manipulate us and he's got some weird rules and we just need to adhere to them. The reason God gives us direction and commandments is because this is the path that leads to flourishing. This is the path that leads to life. This is the path that if you'll follow, even if you don't understand it, is going to satisfy your heart so much more than those other things you follow. What do you follow? You know, do you follow sports? You follow, you know, look, what about social media? If you have social media, what do you follow on social media? You know, whatever you follow influences you. Did you have any emotional response to the Astros losing the World Series? I did. I had an emotional response. But it comes and it goes, and we'll play again next year. And what do you follow? You follow, to put it simply, what you love. You follow what you love. What do you love? Jesus is inviting us to follow the one who says, look, maybe you're just waking up in this moment. Return to me. I'll return to you. If the reality of you being broken is true and you're filthy, I'm going to put new clothes on you. And now this is where you are. I want to invite you to follow me. He never goes the other way around. This is key to persevering in our faith. Is understanding that the way we approach God is to immediately show interest. And that's it. He invites us to follow Him, but it's, all, it's because He loves us so much. You know, I told some of you that Jamie bought me a paddleboard for our anniversary. And uh, we aired it up. And I went out on the lake and I had a great time. And I'm clocking myself. I did a couple miles paddleboarding. And then... This is the fun part of paddleboarding. I just laid on the paddleboard and just kind of drifted in the water and stared up at the sky with my sunglasses and just was relaxing. And after about three minutes, I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a snake. Like, let me look around and make sure I'm not going to get bit. Oh, I wonder if there's an alligator lurking somewhere. Like, this is just kind of inside the mind of Brad. This is a common experience. And, I, and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to look up and see what's, what's happening around me. I don't want to drift towards the shore because sometimes there's trash and gooey goo there, and I don't want to touch that. You know, I want to stay out in the clean middle part of the water. 
And so every few minutes, I'm looking up, checking. Spiritually, you're going to do this. Spiritually, you're going to look up sometimes and think, where am I with God? This is what you need to see. Return to me and I'll return to you. If there's any true accusations about you being unrighteous, I want to take that off and I want to put clean clothes on you. And now what I want you to do is to trust me enough and love me enough to follow me. Because I have great things for you. This is meant to shape us. You know, I mentioned earlier there's 71 quotes from Zechariah in the Newer Testament. If you take all allusions to the Old Testament as well as direct quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament, one in every ten verses in the Newer Testament is quoted or alluded to, uh, alluding to the Older Testament. Ten percent, one in every ten verses. Do you think it matters that we learn and see Jesus in the Older Testament? Of course it does. The promises that are being given are given in the Older Testament so that we might know our Savior. If you feel distant from God this morning and you're looking back, here's what I want to say to you. This is God's word. Return to me and I'll return to you. That's it. Have faith when you turn to me and I will be there. Looking backwards is significant. Okay, let's talk about looking forward for a couple moments. What do you look forward to? Now, I mentioned the holidays earlier. Maybe you're not looking forward to that. But what, what, do, you, what do you look forward to? Um, if, you, if you think about the, the last part of Zechariah, it's all about this forward vision of what's going to happen for us. But really, starting with chapter 3, Joshua is telling, or Zechariah is telling the people, I have a future for you. What are you looking forward to? You ever tried to walk on a balance beam or a straight line? You ever tried to walk on a balance beam or a straight line and stare at the sky? You can't get very far. Jesus is saying, look, I want you to see this. This is where you're headed. I want you to walk this way. I want you to move towards these promises. What are they? Well, a couple things. There are promises here. There's a vision here for us that is greater than present glories, and it's actually greater than present frustrations. It's able to actually calibrate our present because of what God has said and what he's going to do. And so two things here. In Zechariah chapter 9, the text that I read this morning, oops, that's too far. We first read um, in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt. There's a, there's a picture here of some kind of present experience of a king, but he's not here yet. They're actually looking forward to, to Advent. They're looking forward to what we celebrate in Christmas. It's, it's a picture of the first coming. You remember when the disciples are sent by Jesus to go and get a donkey so that he can go into Jerusalem. That, that, that was a fulfillment of this text. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is this call to look at the king who has come. Now for these people, they were still looking forward to this, but we look back. So there's a prophecy there, but there's more. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 14 and following. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl, used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. You get it? This is a big deal that's happening. This is the apocalyptic stuff I was talking about that's quoted in Revelation. The Lord their God will save his people. On that day, as a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. 
Grain will make, them, make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. This is actually a picture of the second coming. This is, this is a call for us to look forward to a coming after this first coming. The Lord their God will save His people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in His land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. So in this text, there's this picture of both what God is going to do with Jesus and what He's going to do with Jesus when He returns again. Let me read you this text. This is from 2 Peter chapter 3. Oh, I was going to read it. Well, let's just do this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, says this, that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years for us. That God's timing is not something we always can wrap our brains around, but he makes promises and he will fulfill them. And part of what Zechariah is doing here is he's giving the people a very clear picture of what God is going to do so that they can cling to it for when it happens in the coming day. And part of the role of this coming of this king is going to be this shepherd who's not named here. The Lord, will say, the Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. Again, how many times is Jesus referred to as a shepherd in the Newer Testament? Or called as the good shepherd for us? He is the king. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd tends to us. He tends to our hearts. He protects us. He provides us joy. But this shepherd does something even more magnificent. And I was talking to the Sunday school class this morning a little bit about this. That if you were to ask the question, what does God think about you, how would you answer it? Let me tell you how God thinks about you. How attractive and beautiful they will be. When you think about the God of heaven and earth looking down on you now, one who has been invited into this courtroom where you are declared welcome by grace and through faith, the one who is your shepherd, the one who comes to save you, how does God see you in this moment? He sees you as someone that he is drawn to, that he's making beautiful because of what this good shepherd has accomplished for us. And do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to experience it? Do you believe it enough to express it? You know, one of the greatest labs to work this out, if you really understand that God has come to be gracious and to win me and to pursue me and care for me, one of the greatest labs for it, parenting. Kyle's doing a class right now on parenting, gospel-centered parenting. And there's a lot of great things going on in that class. But one of, the, one of the important elements of that class is this idea that we actually, number one, we don't love our children like they deserve based on how they act, of course. And we love them because they are our children. But the other thing that we're talking about in this class is what if, what is your chief goal in parenting? Is it behavior modification? Like that wears off. You know, they move out, you know, right? How does behavior modification work? Well, there's lots of strategies. Um, but as we were talking about this morning in our class, we have people in there who have been Christians for more than 40 years. You know what they told me? They still struggle with sin and still need God's grace and his gospel message. I don't think it's because their parents failed. It's because what our hearts really need is not just behavior modification. What our hearts need is to understand what Joshua experienced in that first moment as the number one thing when you begin to take steps in thinking about your relationship with God. Take off those clothes. I want to put new clothes on you. You belong to me. 
What if in our parenting our chief end was to pray, to live, to treat our children in such a way that our goal is for them to know how much God loves them? That they might really experience His grace. That they might really understand that He sees them as beautiful and attractive. And you know why that's so significant to me as a dad? Because I'll never be enough for my kids. I can't always be there. I'm mortal. I don't know how many days I have. But there is one who can always watch out for them who can always care for them. One who's a good shepherd that the Word of God says that on that day he'll save his flock. One who is so intense and and, and beautiful and powerful that he will appear like an arrow that flashes like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. That's the one that I want to entrust my children to above all else. And so even in my parenting to think about how can I love my kids in such a way their hearts are shaped. Let me end with this. I know we're running out of time. A couple of things I think this does to our hearts if we really begin to live into this story. Number one, it makes us a longing people. You should long for this. One day, God is going to make all things new. You have a shepherd who cares for you. It should work in us the ability to be a patient people because Joshua was filthy and Jesus made him clean. Anybody who comes before God and accepts his gospel, his message of grace, understands that they are in need of forgiveness and so we're a patient people because we can be patient and compassionate with those who also need god's grace but i think it also makes us an expectant people do you really expect god's grace to enter into your life and be enough god's inviting you to he's saying return to me and i'll return to you what about this what if god's grace can be enough for those in your life that you love to even entrust them to his grace um you know that that's my prayer for us as a church that we would be a people who see ourselves in that courtroom see ourselves as those who've been declared clean and have the robes of christ placed upon us so that we have access to the father we can begin to see clearly who god is and what he's called us to this week when jamie and i were in Asheville, we were sit- i was sitting out there early in the morning on a on a big porch and i was overlooking the blue ridge mountains and it was a sh- the ma- there was a shadow on the mountains and the sun was behind me, and there was a mountain behind me. And, and early in the morning, as I was reading and I looked up, I saw this one little glimmer on the mountain. Of, it was like yellow. It was like gold. And it was because the sun was coming up behind me, and it had just begun to wash away the shadow and reveal the color of the mountain. And I was like, ooh, this is going to be great. If you want to see a picture, by the way, I took a bunch. I can show you. Then there were greens and reds and orange and all of these beautiful colors the sun made clear who the mountain really was. You understand that if you will bask in God's love, it's doing that to your soul. It's beginning to reveal His image in you more and more and more and more and more. And you're becoming beautiful and attractive because God has told you what's, gonna, what's happened in the past. He's given you hope for the future. He's inviting you into the present to believe that His grace is sufficient for you even this morning. Let me pray for us. Jesus, that courtroom scene in Zechariah 3 is so vivid. To know that there is an accuser, but to know even more that there is a messenger there, that you are there, that you declare us your people, that you give us new robes, and you welcome us into your kingdom. 
And you remind us that you're at work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, sanctifying us to make us a more beautiful and attractive people. Would you help us to bask in that reality today? To experience your grace, which is given to us by faith, and by the power of your Spirit, to be able to express that kind of love to those around us so that many more people might join us in being an expectant people as we wait for our Savior to come again. We pray all this in Jesus' name.